From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Welcome again to Open Line Friday here on EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. Jack Williams away today. I'm Tom Price. Delighted to be with our Friday host, Mr. Colin Donovan. How are you, sir? Uh, pretty good. It's been a big day for you today, I would think. Uh, this has been, uh, well, first of all, it is Our Lady's birthday. That's, That's right. That's kind of a big deal. Uh, we also had uh, our very own Bishop Reka celebrating the Mass today. Yes, and uh, I wasn't at that Mass, but I believe that was for an, a- an ordination anniversary. Yes, uh, the 25th anniversary of Father Miguel taking his vows here at, uh, you know, at the MFVA, at the monastery here. Uh, pretty pretty big deal. Uh, it, it was, and I've seen, uh, I remember when I, I got here in 95, and you were around the same time, mm-hmm. we've seen most of the priests who pe- people see on uh, TV, uh, we saw them ordain, make their final vows and get ordained, and, uh, you know, so we've seen a lot of water grow over the dam in the last uh, several decades. Talking about all this with my wife this morning, and she says, oh yeah, I, I, I remember the day that we met him in 1990." Seven, I think it was, yeah, or ninety-eight, yeah. something like that, and she just she remembered his exuberance. He was mm-hmm. so excited, and he's still excited. He he was too. Uh, you know, I I can yeah, remember that as yeah. well. So uh, he's up at the shrine mostly, and keeps mostly himself so, occupied yeah. up there with the pilgrims and other uh, and other activities. So we don't see him much yeah, down here. Yeah, but that that exuberance a great witness to all of us. So we have uh, open lines. That's why we call it open line here on EWTN. And you can give us a call if you have a question, uh, anything of a theological bent. Here's the phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. You uh, could be listening to us outside the U.S. and Canada. Well, we've got a phone number just for you, and that is 1, and then 205-271-2985. And, of course, you can always send us an email, and that address, openline at EWTN.com. Be sure you put uh, Colin in the subject line or Friday in the subject line. Make sure that uh, Colin gets that. It occurs to me, before we go to uh, some email questions here, as we're getting some of these calls screened, this month is the 20th anniversary of Open Line. Did you know that? It is. Uh, September of 2003. Yes. So I remember we had that little, tiny, little uh, audio suite. I mean, producer side-by-side with a little, tiny talent cozy. suite. Cozy. Cozy. I'm sorry. Very cozy. cozy. <laughs> yes, cozy. And uh, uh, But it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And uh, I, I can't remember. Did we start out one hour, go to two hour, and then come back, or was it two hours That's exactly right. No. I think that was correct. We went to two hour there for a couple of years. And then we went back to one hour, and because uh, I think Al Crest expanded his show to two, and we did That's that right. to accommodate him. As That's right. Yeah, and it's been a, a wonderful thing. We've we've featured many people on Open Line over the years, but you've always been our, our Friday guy. Uh, I was briefly the Monday guy. Oh, really? Yes, but I remember back in those days, John Martinoni was doing some travel with his Bible Christian Society, uh-huh. and he said it would be very helpful if. Uh, 
you could take Friday because I have to travel. <laughs> I said, sure, we'll, we'll, we'll swap to for Friday. So You're I, a good man. he took my Monday and I took his Friday. See how these things work out. It's fantastic. So we're, gonna, we're, we're going to... <laughs> well, I get uh, to play cleanup this way. I'm th- at the very end there you of go. all the questions there that you people go. get well, answered. They should throw well, happy away. anniversary to you. Yeah, and to Gonna you as well. <laughs> lead off here with uh, some uh, uh, questions here via email that we've received over the last couple of weeks. In uh, this one from Martin, Martin says, In the Nicene Creed, what does it mean when it says that Jesus is consubstantial with the Father? Well, the substance is, uh, of course, the individual. Yeah. We think of it in very material terms, obviously, the substance of a plant or an animal or the mm. human person. Yeah. Most substances in the universe are material, and I'm inco- including energy in there. Einstein proved that matter and energy are interchangeable. Mm-hmm. But either of those two things, most substances are that. Human beings are exception in the universe, material universe, because we also are spiritual. So our substance is the unit, unity of our soul and our material bodies in one. So the substance of God is the divine nature. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all share that divine nature. There's not three gods. There is one God, one divine nature. Uh, and you could think about it this way, that all the attributes we apply to God, say, compared to the pagan gods, where mm. they would often, you know, parse out an attribute, and so you would have a god of fertility, or a god of strength and war, or a god of other things, nature. Uh, because they were all attributing one portion of creation and, and to their responsibility. But in the, in the divine nature, because God is all-powerful, all-knowing, all of these swing, things we attribute to, to Godhead or divineness mm-hmm. is that there is nothing greater than there can only be one God. And the Jews recognize this, obviously, because God told Moses, I am who am. Mm-hmm. He is that eg- existential act without which nothing else has existence. The philosophers came up with that much later than the Jews did in the revelation that Moses <laughs> received. But essentially, philosophy conferred with, con- concurred with that with Aristotle and others in uh, Thomistic uh, philosophy. But when we talk about the, the, the way in the divine life, the community of God himself, now we're talking about the persons, that the Father has begotten the Son, and the Father and the Son together have produced the Holy Spirit. And we make distinctions in there. St. John in his gospel talks about, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, we can't distinguish between God as God and his Word any more than we can distinguish between God, his Word, and the divine love. This is the attributes of the divine nature which all three persons have, in which they share equally. Not in parts, not one-third, one-third, one, but they share that completely. Now, the difficulty is we call it a mystery for a reason. We can get to that idea of unity of these th- elements, these, these things, in a certain intellectual way. And Augustine and others have done it in different ways, but by caring the spiritual faculties of man. We talk about the intellect, the knowing, the will, the, the willing or the ordering, and, of course, the, the, the memory, and that is the ability to recall all that, everything else. Uh, 
And so these kinds of distinctions help us to get a, a hint at how spiritual substance can be spoken of in different ways. And so this doesn't demonstrate or solve the mystery of the Trinity, but it points to the fact that it's, it's a reasonable thing. It's not against human reason, even though reason can't understand it. And that's why it requires faith to believe in. The Muslims believe in one God, but they don't believe in the Trinity. The Jews mm. believe in one God, but they don't believe in the Trinity. It requires the faith given us by God as the power to understand and believe that truth, which is not contrary to reason, but exceeds it. And so this basic answer to the question is we have only that one divine nature which the three persons share, uh, and we attribute to it usually different things, creation, redemption, and sanctification, glorification, but all of them participate even in every one of those acts as well. Martin, thanks so much uh, for your email. Here's one now from Paul. Why is Peter, St. Peter if you will, why is Peter considered to be the first pope? He's the first pope because uh, our Lord made him the foundation or the rock upon which the church was built. He's not the rock contrary to Christ. Christ is the rock in the sense of the eternal foundation uh, of, of, of everything that is good and holy. Mm -hmm. And that includes, obviously, the church. But rather, in being, making, leaving a visible representative to carry on his ministry, Peter was the one appointed, the, rock, the foundation upon which the church is built. And he gave him the prerogatives of and told him to, to, for example, to confirm the brothers in the faith. There's a relationship in the order of faith, in the order of teaching, that the, Peter's job was to confirm the brethren and to, to keep them close to the truth. And the brothers are the apostles and the bishops who succeed them. So, Initially, it was quite clear who the head of the, the chief of the apostles were. were. And in fact, uh, the successors of St. Peter in Rome, which is where uh, Peter last was and where he was martyred, also exercised Peter's prerogatives. And that is why we call Peter the first pope, um, and only because he has successors and we can point to where they are and trace them back to Peter. All right. Well, there you go. Uh, Paul, thanks so much uh, for your question. Hey, we've got open lines for you right now. If you have a question for Colin Donovan, here is the number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Open line Friday with Colin Donovan on EWTN. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hey, lines are open for you right now at 8 EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Open line Friday here on EWTN. Hey, you know what? Uh, if you, in this era of fake news, and there's plenty of it out there, 
well, you can rely on Catholic News Agency, CNA. You can uh, co- rely on it to cover the mission and activities of the Catholic Church, including social, political, moral, and cultural issues from a perspective of faith. For the latest Catholic news, visit catholicnewsagency.com, catholicnewsagency.com. It's an online service from EWTN News. And if you want to stay up to date throughout the day, you can now get timely news updates directly into your email inbox. Visit EWTN.com, click on the word subscribe, and that'll open up a little uh, sub-menu of things that you can subscribe to. Just choose Catholic News Agency, and uh, you are off to the races. That's all you have to do. You know, I, I discovered a new way to follow popes this weekend. Really? And I don't mean a new way without the help of EWTN. Okay. Because I went over to Twitter to see what was going on there, and a number of our reporters, in particular Colm Flynn, who did part of the coverage of the uh, from Lisbon and yes. the, with uh, with Matthew Bunsen and Father Mark and mm-hmm. uh, uh, doing that coverage, and he was making nice little videos about Mongolia. Mm. You know, so people don't think of going to like some of our uh, EWTN News Twitter or or Facebook pages and that. But a lot of stuff gets posted on there that you don't normally going to see on a news program because news programs are just organized in a different way. Mm, yeah. uh, we know with longer stories uh, by reporters and this. But, you know, he was putting little uh, putting out little videos and stuff. And it was very, very interesting to watch. And he'd get little cultural notes and stuff that he would put in there. You know, it was either during that coverage of the Holy Father in Mongolia or it was on one of our other platforms, you know, because you don't think about Catholicism in Mongolia. And it was on one of those that I found out that that according to the church there, there are 1,450 Catholics in it's the whole very, country. It's very small. It's, yeah. it's a small country. I think it's like a one and a half million people or something. Yeah. It's not a very big country. But isn't this what Pope Francis has been talking about is that you've got to reach out to everybody, right, even yeah. in under underpopulated areas. That's right. And he made allusions to Mongolian culture and Mongolian beliefs and things like that. And some people, you know, get their bristles up over every little bit of things. But in reaching out to, uh, you know, the church throughout its history and reaching out to different cultures has always looked for the human and the things which are true in those cultures, Mm -hmm. which it's understood uh, using a phrase which uh, uh, St. Justin Martyr in the second century of the seeds of the word, the semini verbi, Mm -hmm. anything that is true and human and and is in a, a reaching out of human nature constitutes a seed of the word, which only comes to full blossom, of course, under the tutelage of the faith and the light of grace and so on. Uh, but looking for those in cultures has been something the church has always done, and I thought the Pope made a, a, a good effort to try to f- appeal to the other people in the sure. country rather than just the 1,450 Catholics yeah. Yeah. Uh, that you mentioned. And by the way, Mongolian beef, very tasty. It's good. <laughs> it's very good. I just had to point that out. Uh, well, I remember being in the Navy, you used to be able to get Mongolian barbecue. Oh, Yes. Even better. Restaurants in different places. (laughs) If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Sylvia in Texas, listening online, uh, actually listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Sylvia, happy Friday. What's on your mind today? I'm just wondering uh, why the one hour no eating before Mass. Okay. Okay. Uh, first, it's a one-hour fast before Holy Communion. Right. So, 
uh, you know, probably a lot of Catholics, and I know I've done this, you're looking at your watch and you <laughs> haven't had breakfast yet. Do I have time? Mm, yeah. You know, well, the, the, will the homily be long? Who's saying the mass? <laughs> and you're calculating out when that one hour you know, communion are, will come. We are so soft. We're we, just we so are, soft. We are. We <laughs> are. You know, and Catholics before uh, the, the changing of the penitential norms in the 1960s after the Second Vatican Council, fasting from midnight, I remember that. Man, talk about difficult. Now you're talking. You know, you didn't go to the noon mass in those days no, unless you were very no. hardy. Yeah. Uh, but the reason is because the Lord is not profane food. He is sacred food because it's him himself. Sure. And so to honor that, we wish our, that our stomachs, not in receiving the sacred species... Uh, which are the accidents of the bread and the wine, and but he is there wherever they are. Uh, the idea is, A, it's a penitential practice that we're disposing and preparing ourselves, but also that our system uh, is purged of any of the ordinary food, the profane food, uh, if you will, that we have taken in, in during a period of time. You know, medicine can tell you how long it takes for the stomach to clear and all of that. And I think yeah. the church has taken that into account. Uh, in uh, some of the Eastern churches, they still have very, many more fasts and longer fasts. Uh, so you would have to check with uh, an Eastern Catholic brother or sister of the Maronite or Melkites or Ruthenian or other uh -huh. rites for that. But in the Roman rite, we've made it sort of simple you know, if you're going to the noon mass, you don't have to fast from midnight. You get to fast for one hour before going to communion. You know, so uh, if you have in doubt, you should abstain. Sure. You know, but uh, it's always good to ask yourselves, well, when did I actually have that last morsel? And if, if you miss the target and you can't receive, then you'll do a little bit better on thinking ahead of who you're going to receive the next time. Absolutely. Sylvia, there's your answer. Thank you so much for your call today from Texas. And that opens up a line for you right now if you have a question for Colin Donovan here on EWTN's Open Line Friday. 833-288-EWTN is that number. 833-288-3986. Interesting question here from Amy. What is the meaning of the words mystery of faith in the Mass? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, sort of spoken of it already, and we're talking about the Trinity, that there are things which Christians are asked to believe that are supernatural. In other words, they be, uh, go beyond explanation. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly that God is almighty and so on requires faith uh, rather than just simply reason. You can get to reason, as the pagan philosophers did, that there must you know, be some you know, first cause, existential first cause. I mentioned that in uh, the first question. Mm -hmm. But you can't get to the idea that there is a personal God, a God who has revealed himself to, to human beings. And, of course, we believe that that revelation is contained in the revelation to the Jewish people, to the Israelites, and the revelation uh, in and through Jesus Christ. So when we say mystery of faith in sacred scripture, or rather in the Mass, yes, or we use it in other context, it's having to do with what just took place. That Christ at the Last Supper, and you listen to those words of institution, which tell us what's taking place. Christ at the Last Supper said, took bread, this is my body which will be given up for you. And then he took wine, this is the cup or chalice of my blood 
which will be shed for you. To believe that this really is the body and blood of Christ, that requires faith. To believe how God does it, that's and what that means exactly, that's a mystery. That's a mystery like God himself. That's a mystery like the incarnation, God becoming man in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So we will never penetrate those, and even in heaven, we will never understand those mysteries the way God himself does. But we get little glimmers of that truth, and so we know from the Gospel of John in chapter 6, people walked away. Uh, many of the Jews who had been taught you that it was wrong to, to, uh, to eat anything, the, the blood, the blood had to be drained, the kosher laws, that's one of the things that kosher preparation of, of animals means is the draining of all the blood because the Jew is not permitted to consume blood. Mm -hmm. And so that to them was an abomination, that statement of Christ. And the apostles were asked, well, do you wish to leave me too? And that, But they understood Christ had the words of eternal life. In fact, he had just told them that the eternal life is what he gives them when he, we eat their, his body and blood. So we're professing that mystery when we re give that response to the mystery of faith or mysterium fidei in Latin. Mm -hmm. We're saying, what just exactly? So Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, or the other formulas that are used you know, variously in different masses. All of those are profession in the reality of the mystery of the Eucharist, which has just taken place on the altar, and which is in a way completed when we ourselves receive in Holy Communion, and we receive that gift of Christ himself, of his body and blood. We're confirming that. And how do we, how do, we do that? When the priest holds up and says, body of Christ, and we say, amen. amen. That's our affirmation of our belief that this is the body of Christ and not a wafer of bread such as our senses tell us. Or as Aquinas said, the senses deceive us. Faith is going to keep us straight as to what we're really receiving. Amy, thanks so much uh, for your email. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. James uh, wrote to us and says, how did the wise men know as much as they did in finding Jesus as a baby? Were these prophecies from Scripture? I think some of that is possible. Remember, uh, this is, I think, the supposition of many scholars, that we sometimes hear them called the, the Magi. Um, some have referred to them as the Chaldees because there was a, an intellectual class among the Babylonians mm -hmm. um, I mean, depending on what era in history you, uh, you might refer to a scientist as a magician or something like that because it will, his knowledge is ability to do things which you can't understand and explain. But just the, the depth of appreciation. And they also had their theories of the universe and, you know, the, the, the demigods that inhabited and all of these kinds of things. So these were probably Babylonians who came in contact with the Jewish scriptures beginning with the Babylonian exile. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, there was a strong Jewish community in Babylon and Alex in Alexandria and Egypt, sort of Babylon, Egypt, and Palestine were the three centers. And then Rome became a great center because uh, so many Jews went to Rome, whether uh, to to make their to make money or to in some kind of service or to just you know uh, provide for their families and so on. So these great centers, the knowledge and the information passed around among them. And it's quite likely 
that uh, the prophecies of Bethlehem and uh, so on, uh, as the as the Jewish priests told Herod, for example, yeah. that they were also familiar with that. And then they had the sign from the heavens, because one of the things those early scientists believed in was the heavens foretold the future. And so God can use even those pagan beliefs, which we would call superstition today, he can use them to guide them. He can also have done something miraculous, and we don't know whether it was miraculous or, or some natural phenomena that he used to instruct uh, the Magi. Either way, he got them to Bethlehem with the help probably of the Jewish scriptures as well. Got the job done. James, thanks for your email. Lines are open for you at 833-288-EWTN. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey, calls are coming in right now for Colin Donovan. If you have a question for him, do give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Hey, our friends in Indiana need to hear from you next week. Catholic Radio Indy uh, celebrating their fall share drive, and that'll be next Wednesday and Thursday. So if you're listening to any of their five stations throughout Indiana, or anywhere really, please support your EWTN Catholic Radio Station. They've been a great partner of EWTN's uh, for many years. Glad to support Catholic Radio Indy. All right, let's get back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Ronald, a first-time caller from New Orleans, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Ronald, what's on your mind today, sir? Well, I'm having trouble figuring out how Mary is the new Eve, and mm-hmm. maybe I'm being too concrete in my thinking. So in Genesis, God creates Adam, and then he brings forth Eve as his spouse. Mm-hmm. In the New Testament, Mary becomes the mother of the new Adam. So how is she the new Eve mm-hmm. when she's her relationship is different than the original one? Okay, because it's a new human nature, isn't it? Our bond is not one of material bond in material descent, but of spiritual descent. In other words, it's the bond of charity. So you see the prefigurement in Genesis that both mother and son who will crush the head of the serpent, are mentioned. And the Church then often has used over time both Mary's role in crushing the head of the serpent and Christ's role, that this is, a, that, that this is representative of, of the new humanity. And you could even say that each of us, to the extent that we overpower our own, with the help of grace, we overcome our own, we crush the head of the serpent, we participate in that. Mary's role was seminal and unique, obviously, at the beginning of history. And there are prefigurements, obviously, of that in the Old Testament. So on the natural level, uh, I think the most common scholarly reference is to the role of Bathsheba and David in the the, uh, kingdom of Judea. And the reasoning there is because this was when God tolerated, he didn't desire it, but he tolerated the polygamy of the kings. And so there were many wives, and so who would, had the role of queenship? Uh, it was his mother, Bathsheba. It wasn't any of his uh, concubine wives or wives uh, in, uh, by any other sense, but rather his mother. So we get that idea of the queen mother, which continues in natural royal lines. But you also see it in the Song of Songs, the Canticle of Canticle. Now, scholars will tell you that this is after the pattern of a love song. Well, what kind of is 
does God really in the business of giving us works which Virgil probably could do a very good job and some of the the Roman love poetry is 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 well known and historically yes, yes. Uh, no this is a lo- a love between God and mankind and so we see that in the references that God makes to Israel through the course of her history Israel is his spouse She's an adulteress because she has taken other gods. So the role of creator and created, of God and creature, did not keep God of tre- from treating Israel as in a marriage where there is a bond and a commitment that is between the two of them that should never be broken. He makes the promise, and also Israel makes the promise, which then it doesn't live up to a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what do we have in, in Christian analogy to that, obviously, is the mystical body of Christ and also the imagery of the bride of Christ. Well, obviously, in the mystical body where we are the members, we are in no way, we don't have little parts of the divinity in us or anything like that. So these are ways of demonstrating to us the proximity and the closeness of the spiritual union between Christ and and those who are in Christ through baptism. So again, we come back to, of all of these types of people who are spiritually regenerated, who is number one? Who of the brides and the bridegrooms, prefigured in the Song of Songs, for example, Canticle of Canticles, of who of the many brides of the bridegroom is the chief bride? Who is the one who is representative? This is Our Lady, who is mother of us according to redeemed nature, according to grace, in the same way that Eve was his mother to us in the natural order. And the fathers saw this very early on. And so even before I think any of them explained this, they, looking for these relationships in Scripture, they saw that as Adam was the new Adam— as Paul tells us in Romans, mm-hmm. Mary is the new Eve. Could, how do you have a human race that is not a reflection of the natural race that God created yeah. and is told, given to us in Genesis? And they saw that immediately. And you can find, uh, you know, there are probably other ways of explaining it than that, but I think you sort of get the idea, and I hope that helps. Uh, Ronald, does that help help you? It does. It's given me a lot of food for thought. I appreciate it. Thank you. You are most welcome. By the way, you can uh, check out the podcast uh, after the show, perhaps over the weekend, if you'd like to hear that in depth. The address for that is EWTN.com forward slash radio. Then just look for the word podcast. Click on that and then look for Colin's smiling face. (laughs) (laughs) You'll be all set. Ronald, thanks so much for your call. Assuming it's smiling. Of course it's smiling. But if it's not Click on it anyway. There you go. <laughs> open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN. We do have a line or two open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Interesting question here from Kate. When was the earliest notion of the procreative and unitive truth of marriage? I think that, you know, in the the early fathers struggled with this. Yeah. And uh, Augustine and others tried to... The procreative is obvious. Sure. Obvious obvious to most people in human history. 
not so obvious to people today, obviously. Mm, that's another <laughs> so story. So here is a natural, here is a natural order truth which surprisingly millions of people have forgotten, the procreative dimension. Sure. The unitive dimension simply would, uh, reflecting upon what are the goods that are exchanged in marriage? What is it that the husband gives the wives and the wife gives the husband? And so clearly we can see that there is this support that each of them gives in life, whether they have children or not. There are childless couples who have beautiful marriages simply because they have this wonderful sharing of uh, of their of their mutual goods and of themselves with others, so the the expressions unitive and procreative are a little bit more modern. Perhaps the personalist movement, uh, I think, in Pius the uh, ninth in Casti Canubi, or not really? ninth, the eleventh in okay. Casti Canubi, right. be some hints of it as well as as in more recent writings. But I think the basic elements of that in the mutual support in the raising of children. Because what is the mutual support ordered to? Obviously, it's towards helping each other in the world. But since procreation is the constituting part of the sexual relationship which marriage is, that has to have a relationship as well. And so it's the raising of children. You know, and most biologists would tell you, and I certainly learned this in my biological studies at Northwestern, Human beings are fairly unique among species in the care that we give our children. You know, the giraffe is born and it's walking around very quickly. The horse as well. Yeah. But human beings, we look after these people for you know, 18 years, yeah, 20 wow. years, and people are finding 30 and 36 years yes, even, you know. Yes. Uh, and the son's still in the basement on his computer or whatever. Oh, so... We give an inordinate and an unusual amount of care to our children. So clearly the raising and the upbringing of human beings is an element of that. And so this has been distilled into those two meanings. The unitive meaning which unites the couple, mm -hmm. this gift of themselves, which John Paul II calls it the, the self-donation. I donate myself to you, you donate yourself to me, and a bond is formed. And then the procreative element, which is obviously the constituting element of marriage, of biologically, even when it's an infertile marriage or when it's a, a non-productive marriage yeah. in terms of having children, is still the distinguishing feature of marriage. This is why the church is so opposed to definitions of marriage that would be other than male and female, or would be polyamorous, you know, two males and a female, or two females and a male, or six males and three females. I mean, these kinds of ideas to the church don't make any sense either biologically or naturally. Uh, it has one thing as a goal, the, the pleasure of the union. Uh, and that's a fairly self-ordered goal. There's sure. very little donation. There's no giving. There is no real unity in there because you can't really have unity among three, six, or however many people are in the, quote, right. marriage. Right, right. So the church's ideas are based upon nature. Even the Romans understood a good deal of this. It's a consortium of the whole life, as canon law refers to it, drawing even from the ancient Roman idea of what marriage was. And so we today think we're so much wiser than nature and our ancestors, and we blow past those boundaries. 
but really marriage is all about the unitive and the procreative dimension. The procreative because that what constitutes it marriage from friendship and other male-female relationships, colleagues, friendship, whatever other relationship, uh, that's what distinguishes it. And unitive because the union is for the good of the couple and the good of the progeny. Kate, thanks so much uh, for your question today. It is Open Line Friday here on EWTN. If you missed part of our program, we do encore it tonight on the radio at 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. on the West Coast. Do check it out, the encore, each and every um, weekday evening at 10 p.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. We do have a couple lines open for you if you have a question for Colin Donovan, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 2883986 fascinating question here from George if a pope were to commit formal heresy would he cease to be the pope that's been argued as a theological point and a canonical point but there is no way to unseat a pope this is the difficulty with it both canonically and theologically mm, yeah um the only pope who was, or at least one, a pope who was thought to be uh, a heretic, was after he was dead, they dug his body up and threw him in the Tiber. So he had a very unceremonious <laughs> end, at least to his mortal remains. Rude. Very rude. <laughs> uh, but he had given a private opinion on, on, on uh, the nature of the incarnation mm. that was clearly wrong and, uh, against so uh, popes over the centuries have held a lot of uh, wrong private opinions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the exercise of the ordinary magist- magisterium has guarantees uh, connected with it. The obligation connected with that is well defined in Lumen Gentium uh, uh, chapter 25 where it talks about the way in which a single articulation becomes a more formal part uh, by repetition, by multiple pontificates saying the same kinds of things, so they acquire a greater authority and weight. And there are very clear rules on what is in the extraordinary magisterium, the exercises of that, whether by a pope or by an ecumenical council in union with the pope. So I think theologians can probably parse these things much better than the ordinary Catholic. Uh, but I, th- I think the main thing is... Uh, even if that were the case, we would be in uncharted territory and nobody could pronounce a solution because nobody would be Pope. Yeah. <laughs> so, and that's where that solution would have to come. So the church will goes on in all those circumstances. We've had bad decisions, prudential and otherwise, by popes mm-hmm. in two millennium. Um, I think no book has been writ- writ- written that cataloged them, but most church history book certainly gives lots of accounts of, you know, failed prudential decisions mm. as well as, you know, questionable uh, ecclesiastical practices and thinking as well. So uh, if we're going to let that scandalize us, then, as St. Thomas would say, taking passive scandal, in other words, being scandalized is itself a sin, as is giving the scandal, sure. active scandal. Sure. Made me think, as you were laying all this out, that yes, there have been imprudent decisions, m- imprudent things said by popes over the years, over all these years, and two words came to my mind, and yet. And yet. And yet, here yeah. we are. 
here we are. Well, I think it was, uh, it may not have been Pius VII. It might have been, I think they thought it might be his Secretary of State who told Napoleon, who threatened to destroy the, the church if if the Pope didn't help, help him by making him Roman Emperor or something like that, yeah. putting the crown on his head. Yeah. And the Cardinal said to him, you know, if we if we priests and cardinals and have not managed to destroy the church, <laughs> you're not going to succeed either. Love that. Love yeah. that. It is uh, Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN. Back to the phones now for David, a first-time caller from New Orleans, listening on the great Catholic Community Radio. Hey, David, happy Friday to you. What's on your mind today, sir? Good afternoon, guys. So I have a two-part question, and this is in regards to preparing students for confirmation. But mm -hmm. um, so the first part of the question is, why do we not call Old Testament characters as a saint? For instance, we never refer to Moses as Saint Moses or Abraham as Saint Abraham. Uh, but I would imagine that there are a lot of Old Testament characters that students would be able to choose as a confirmation name. So the second part of the question would be, how would we know whether or not an Old Testament character would be a good choice to use as a saint name mm -hmm. uh, for someone who's preparing for confirmation. Probably most of the names you might think of, uh, Adam and Eve, David, uh, Isaiah, Elijah, if you wish to spend the money and go to vaticanum.com, I think it's called, where you can order the books from the Vatican, and we're to get the Roman Martyrology, uh, in 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 Latin, I might add, uh -huh. uh, you would find among the, those who have feast days all of those individuals that you're thinking of, that the church has acknowledged and practiced. The Eastern churches have more of them on their liturgical calendars in the Roman church. They tend to be more uh, imitators of Christ than rather generically. So the the church is putting forward the argument through the liturgical calendar, at least in the West. These are people whose following of Christ is to be imitated. It's more difficult to make that, you know, if you had, uh, uh, for instance, in my office, I have a picture of Elijah. And I have that because I had the opportunity going with uh, Scott Holtz years ago to wow. Israel. Wow. And we went to up on Mount Carmel and we saw the cave and the church that is there. And I thought this would be a great to have a picture. And he is a Saint Elijah because he manifested, obviously, Christian virtues, in quotes, in anticipation of Christ, because mm. he was faithful to God and did. So you can find the virtues, the life of virtues, but maybe not exactly the explicit witness to Christ there, uh, except in an Elijah or, or uh, Isaiah, who may have made some you know, forward-thinking sure. uh, pr prophetic statement there. Mm -hmm. But you can find those in, in many uh, collections of saints as well, uh, that have more fuller collections than you would see normally on a, on a shelf that's giving you mostly those who are on the general liturgical calendar. Uh, and But you'd have to do that. Some of the older uh, 1800, 1900, early 1900 books of saints will have uh, some of those individuals in them. There's even a, a, the previous martyrology from the 40s is still kicking around. You can probably get that on some of the more traditional book sites. Uh, they have a lot, will have a lot of those names. Or you can spend the money and have it shipped to you from Rome and have the full list of uh, recognized by Rome uh, saints 
uh, from about, I think it's last updated, like 2005. So okay. you can add those that Benedict and Francis have canonized and made ble- and beatified and so on to the list as well. Um, wow. you know, like Saint, uh, I think St. Well, Benedict St. Hildegard. Yes. Uh, she was recognized in Germany, but he made it official for the rest of the church. Uh, and there have been some others since then that have received a, a, a kind of equivalent canonization mm. because so long in history have they been recognized that they are uh, the, the See of Rome, the Pope, the power of the Pope put his stamp on it and listed them in the, in the martyrology. There you go, David. There is your confirmation class homework. <laughs> in, in preparation for that. You got a little time left before That's confirmation right. next yeah, year yeah. to work that one out. What would, what would Mother Angelica say? Get cracking. Yes. <laughs> That's right. David, thanks so much for your call. It is Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan here on EWTN Radio. Interesting question here from Ford. Ford says, does the name Deuterocanon mean that those books are somehow less inspired than the rest of Scripture? No, the, but just that they were, you might say, second considered. Uh, those books are taken generally from the Sept, uh, Septuagint collection, which was used in the early church. Mm-hmm. And not all of them are used by the Roman church that are not among the ones we normally think of from the Palestinian canon, which is late first century and not of Christ's time, but okay. generally in Christ's time it would have been uh, the list probably. And so I think from that point of view, you can think of them as sort of the, the second list. And the church canonized those, and so beginning in the 4th century, uh, you will find those uh, names listed. You mm-hmm. will find them uh, listed in a letter that uh, Pope uh, Sylvester, I think it was, wrote to a bishop in Gaul around the year 380, uh, because the Synod of Rome of 380 uh, listed those books. And Augustine in North Africa in uh, councils in Carthage, I think two of them in the 90s, 390s, listed them. And then up through the Middle Ages until the Council of Trent simply put, you know, the the full canonical and doctrinal weight of the church behind that list, which had already been believed and accepted for over a thousand years, for 1,200 years. So it simply made it clear only because the Protestants started throwing them out of the Bible uh, and in order to insist that, no, this has been the sacred tradition of the church. We accept these deuterocanonical books uh, as they were listed in 380. They are listed in 1570 as they are listed in 1970 as they are listed in 2023. So they would not be considered less inspired. No, they're right. You know, that's like being a little pregnant, and you've heard that, those yes, arguments. Yes, yes thank yes. you for that. You can't be a little bit. Ford, thanks so much for your question. Uh, Kiok is watching us today in Lokachar, Kenya, in Africa, uh, via YouTube. Hey there. Uh, here is uh, Kiok's question. As we celebrate the birthday of our beloved Mother Mary today, how did the Catholic Church come about in naming December 25th as the birth of Christ? Some make good arguments, I think, for it being uh, the day uh, that Christ came into the world in the midst of darkness. Mm-hmm. Uh, others point to the need uh, the, to, to evangelize the Romans who had uh, their winter solstice festivals and uh, Saturnalia and other things there. Um, and that's been used in a polemic against Catholicism for that reason, that, oh, the Catholics just took the you know, the Roman festivals and turn them into Christian ones. 
No, they were used in, in using the principle of the seed of the word, the semini verbi, that some things can be turned and, and utilized, in this case, not to find the good in them, because there was hardly anything you could say good about those kinds of festivals such as were practiced, but rather to turn the people from them and to attract them to the beauty of the faith. And so why that particular date? Uh, it's sort of difficult to put any real strong you know, historical reason on that particular one. But the arguments go to either the adaptive argument to draw the pagans in and, and the, also the symbolism of the middle of the night. Christ mm. came into the, essentially into the middle of the night and brought light. Yeah. Um, and we see those kinds of references in Scripture as well. But it may also, as some have tried to demonstrate, also have an actual basis in fact. It was a, something of a late feast celebrated. Mm. And Epiphany was celebrated before it, as obviously Easter was the, the primary and principal sure. feast and the first one celebrated in the church. And then everything sort of fell into place based on what led up to Easter. And, of course, with the deaths of saints and the desire to, to uh, uh, celebrate their witness to Christ and their examples uh, as, as living Christ's life, uh, those two then started appearing on calendars, and over time it's become rather full. But it started with Easter, and it's it spread uh, later in the year and earlier in the year from that great feast day. Well, very good. And we want to thank uh, Keck, I believe that's how you pronounce his name, in uh, Lokachar, Kenya, Africa. Uh, very glad that you're watching us today on YouTube. Remember, if you have a question that you would like to shoot to us via email, you can do that anytime. You can do it over the weekend. You can do it in the middle of the night. Here's the address, openline at EWTN.com, openline at EWTN.com. And if you are writing to us, uh, please be sure to put the name of the host uh, in the subject line or the day of the week. In this case, it would be either Colin or Friday. And I think Colin is your name. Friday is the day of the week. I, I believe so. That's I, I don't want to get those confused at all. We're both getting older, so it's hard to keep them straight sometimes. Tell me about it. And thank you so much. Have a great weekend. You as well. We hope everybody has a great weekend. We do this program open line, now celebrating its 20th year on the radio, uh, each and every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern with an encore at 10 p.m. Eastern. Check it out whenever you want by checking out the podcast by going to EWTN.com forward slash radio. On behalf of our fantastic team here, I'm Tom Price along with uh, Colin Donovan. Thanks for joining us. Have that great weekend. We'll see you on Monday. God bless. <laughs>